What's up, young adults? Uh, like, like I said, my name is Tyler Miller. Uh, I'm pumped to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, I think a lot of the room's college students, right? Decent chunk? Okay, cool. Y'all need to wake up. All right. So uh, I figured I'd start off by giving you guys one of my most fond memories in college. And so it's back to my sophomore year. Some people are going to start smiling because they've heard this story recently. <laughs> uh, it's my, back to my sophomore year. So this is like 20, uh, 2014. Uh, the fraternity that I was in in Missouri State, we were going to Lexington, Kentucky, which is where our like chapter headquarters was. And, and so we're there, we're doing an initiation of the new guys, like the freshmen for that year that we're going to join our fraternity. And, and so that night afterwards, everybody's excited, like they're wanting to celebrate. So everybody is going to go to one of two places. The guys that are 21 go to the, um, go to the bars, go downtown, and the guys that are under 21 go to the strip club. And so that left three of us that didn't want to do either of those things. So there were three of us sitting in the hotel room like, man, what do we do? We're in a town that we don't know. Uh, and then one of the older guys came in and was like, hey, you guys should go to the University of Kentucky, their Fiji chapter, and you should steal their owl. <laughs> We're like, what? And they're like, yeah, they're snowy white owl, which Fiji, the fraternity that I was in, our mascot or whatever is a snowy white owl, kind of like Hedwig from Harry Potter to give you a, an idea. And so he's like, y'all should go steal it. And we're like, sounds good. And so this is like, dates me a little bit, but this is before Uber was really a thing. And so the fraternity house was about two miles from our hotel. So we walk to, this, uh, to the fraternity house and we get there and the, the plan was simple. The plan was we're gonna get a house tour. We're gonna be Fiji's from Mizzou. I'm gonna slip off and go steal this owl. And oh, by the way, the owl was not alive. The owl was uh, like mounted, taxidermied, uh, but it was still like decent size and it was probably gonna be in a case was, was the plan. And so we get to the house, first thing goes wrong, no one's home. Every, all the lights are off and my buddies are like, well, oh well, let's walk back. And I'm like, no, nah, let's check the doors. And so we start checking doors, doors are all locked. And then the guys are like, all right, now seriously, we gotta go. And I'm like, let's check a couple windows. So we start checking windows. One of the windows is unlocked. And I'm like, I mean, this is like divine. This is, this is gonna happen, it has to happen. And so I start to open the window on the front porch of the fraternity house. And I, we look down the street, there's just three of us. We look down the street and there's a group of about 15, 18 guys walking down the street towards us. And my hands are like on the window. And so they're like close enough to us at this point that it's like they would beat us off of the porch. And so I'm like, well, we're just kind of here now. Luckily, they crossed the street, went to a different fraternity house. And so now we're like really nervous. It's like, okay, we need to either get out of here, do it. We got to decide. And so I, I look in the window and I'm like, I'll just see if I can see it and we'll probably leave, whatever. I look in the window and I'm like, I don't see it. This feels weird. I'm getting nervous. And as I pull my head out, I look up and the owl is in a glass case, like right above my head. And so I'm like, and I like don't even really think. Next thing I know, I'm in the house, seeing if it's open, it's unlocked. It's in a glass case, it's unlocked. And the next thing I know, we're like running down the highway and I'm carrying this owl like this. And so it's like the owl on top of a few logs. So this thing's like, like it, it's probably quite a sight to see three guys running down the road carrying this dead owl on top of these logs. We get back to the, uh, the hotel. Some, by this point in the night, a lot of the older guys are coming back from the bars and stuff. 
And everybody's like trying to touch it and stuff. And I'm like, guys, this is kind of nice. Like maybe we shouldn't touch it. And, and then I start to think, I wonder how valuable this is. So I look up just a quick search online. Like if you bought a snowy white owl, like how much would it be? And long story short, my guess is this owl is like eight or nine grand. And so it's like extremely rare. You can't legally get one anymore if it hasn't been made in the last like 50 years. So it's, it's like really rare. And so I'm like, man, I kind of stole like a small car. Like this feels a little, this feels not good. And so, but I'm like, but now I'm committed. And so we're taking it back to Springfield with us. And so we're almost back to Springfield. I get a call from their fraternity president saying, hey, if the owl is not back by Tuesday at 8 a.m., I'm gonna press charges. And just so you know, the owl is insured and it's appraised for $14,000, which I'm like, it's not really a stretch because this owl looks way better than the ones you could buy online. And so I'm like, man, I feel, I don't know really how it works, but I'm pretty sure this is like jumped into grand theft and we're like bringing it two states away. And I'm like, this is not a time to like call someone's bluff. So that night I'm like trying to figure out how much would it be to overnight it back to Lexington, Kentucky, way too expensive. So the next day I get out of class, me and one of the guys that helped me, we drive back to nine hours back to Lexington right after we drove from Lexington. We get to the fraternity house and I'm like, we're standing there, I'm holding the owl. There's just two of us. And I'm like, I don't really know what's about to go down. I think they're pretty mad. Who really knows what's about to happen? It's midnight. We knock on the door. And when the guy opens the door, the room's full, the living room is full and they go nuts. They're like laughing. They're like, you all, you stole the owl. I can't believe you broke in here and stole the owl. And I'm like, yeah, this is weird. I thought you'd be really mad. And so uh, we walk into the house, everybody's cool, except the president, he was ticked. And, and like, when we walked into the, uh, the conference room, the glass case was gone. So like, he wasn't lying when he said they, t- they took it to the police station to get fingerprints and stuff. So he was seriously probably gonna press charges on us. We gave the owl back, he yelled at us, drove home. I think that it's over. And then our campus finds out about this whole thing and how we like stole something from another fraternity at another campus. And our, our chapter at Missouri State gets put on probation because of this. And so at the time, the, the president of our chapter like didn't really like me for a handful of reasons. And so he's like, Tyler, you were not acting in a way that was worthy of being a Fiji gentleman. And so your punishment, you're gonna have to write and present 10 reasons or 10 ways that Fiji gentlemen act. And you're gonna have to do it in front of the chapter. And so like my punishment was I had to come up with 10 things that made a Fiji gentleman a Fiji gentleman. And I had to present it in front of the chapter. Everyone's laughing. It's still in the bylaws today for the Fijis in here. You can go find it. But the, guy, the, the president was like, Tyler, you were acting in a way that was not worthy of being a Fiji gentleman. And we are Fiji gentlemen. And mind you, the guy that told me to do this in the first place was the old president. But nonetheless, like I was not acting in a way that is worthy of being a Fiji gentleman. And so tonight, we're gonna jump back into Philippians 1 and we're gonna do the last four verses and we'll see how this kind of ties in. So Philippians 1, uh, we've been going through Philippians at young adults. And so these are the last four verses again of chapter one. And here they are. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so, man, when I read this passage, especially being a guy that's like, like too competitive, like to a fault, I read this passage and all I can see is at the very beginning when Paul challenges the, Philipp- the Philippians to walk worthy, to, to live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk worthy. He's making it clear, Paul is making it clear that you can't say you live your life one way, but in reality, live another way. Man, I read that and, and I, get, I feel extremely convicted sometimes reading things like this because, because I start to like process and evaluate the way I'm living. Like, am I living for things of God or things of myself? It, what am I giving my thoughts and my time and my energy to? Am I, valuing, am I valuing things on earth or am I valuing things of God? Is my, is my life in a manner that is walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I do want to take a couple minutes to be clear uh, about something on the front end. Because I think, um, especially in our culture right now, I think a lot of times we view this as like, okay, if I can live my life in a way that is worthy of getting to God, then he will accept me and then he will love me. And so I want to take a few minutes to talk about this, which immediately imposes a problem. And here's why. The God of the universe that created everything you see, like everything you see outside, everything, everything you are, everything in the city you're from, the state you're from, the country you're from, it doesn't matter. Like God created it. My wife and I are actually about a third of the way through Interstellar right now, which if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Top five, maybe top three movie ever. It's incredible. And and when I'm watching it, I'm just like, man, like God created this stuff. These like black holes, you can go through to another galaxy, like which I don't think is actually how it works, but it's kind of a cool, cool idea. But I'm just watching it and I'm just like, man, God is like so big, powerful, awesome. And, And whenever I'm thinking of this, I'm like, it also just helps separate how far God is from me. I think of how God is perfect, how God is holy, how everything God is, I am not. And I think of how he is perfect and holy. Like right now, God is sitting on his throne and there are angels that are surrounding him singing like we were singing a few minutes ago. And these angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And they're doing it over and over and over because God is holy and he's perfect and he's set apart. And so the problem with that is that ever since the beginning with Adam and Eve, we immediately chose sin, we chose ourselves, and it separated us from God. And ever since then, we've been trying to figure out ways to, to fix that problem. In a way, I like to uh, explain it to guys I hang out with at Missouri State is this. Us trying to fix this problem of sin on our own is like if I'll be hanging out with a guy and we'll be eating on campus and I'll be like, hey, what if Michael Phelps walked in here and he's like, hey, you two, let's go race in the, in the rec center, a swimming, a swimming race. And, and then I asked the guy, like, hey, man, who do you think would win, us or Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps. And I was like, okay, then what if instead of racing in the rec center, just a couple laps, what if instead we flew to L.A. To, and, then we, and then we swam from L.A. to Tokyo across the Pacific Ocean? I'll ask him, who do you think wins that race, Michael Phelps or us? 
And usually they're like really confused at what I'm asking. They're like, uh, us? Uh, Michael Phelps still? But the answer ultimately is this. No one wins that race. And here's why. Like Michael Phelps might make it further than us. He might make it, I have no idea, to be honest, five miles? I don't know. Maybe we make it one or two miles. I like to think I can make it at least a few miles. But it doesn't matter. If you looked at, if you looked on a map and you saw LA and Tokyo and you saw how far we could swim, it's like it, it's, it looks like we didn't even start. Like we don't, we don't come close to covering the distance from LA to Japan. Even Michael Phelps, the best swimmer in the world, isn't coming close to crossing the Pacific Ocean. And I think this is a really clear, a clear picture of what it actually looks like for us to try to get to God on our own. If we tried to, to live our lives in a manner that was worthy on our own, this is what it would look like. We're not getting close. And so when thinking of that, the only way we're getting to, getting to God is if we can get across the ocean some other way. And this is when enters a baby 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth in the form of a man, lived a life just like me and you, lived a perfect life, died, came back from the dead. And if we put our trust in him, that is how we can cross the Pacific Ocean and get to God. There's no other way to get to God except through Jesus. He says in John 14, uh, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. And because of this, at that point and that point only, are we able to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. But it's not because of what we do, it's because of what Jesus has already done in us. And so I wanted to, to make that clear, like, because I think we try to get to God on our own sometimes, but it just doesn't work. And I know, and you can feel it too, whenever you're trying on your own power to get to God, but the only way you're gonna get to God is through Jesus. And then at that point, we do have a responsibility to walk worthy in obedience, following what God and what Jesus has set before us. That this idea of walking worthy, um, and, and it reflects Christ to the world, it isn't exclusive to this book in Philippians. We see this in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, talking about Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This verse is like, hey, if you say you follow Jesus, your life should look like that. Another one, John 14, 21, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will follow me and do what I say. We could go on Titus 2, 7 and 8, Matthew 5, 16, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. These are all places where, where the Bible is clear. If someone is following God, their life, their life looks different. Their life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's word is clear. And whenever I think about this, like Christians' lives looking different, I think back to a couple weeks ago, I was eating with two guys and we were having a conversation about if they, were, if they were at a place that they were ready to start following Jesus. And in that conversation, one of them said, man, T-Mill, what's really hard for me when thinking about if I wanna follow God is I look around and I see people that say they're Christians, but their lives don't like really look like that. You know what I mean? Like he's like saying it in a way that it's news to me. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I get that. Like, I don't, I don't know what to say because he's right. But man, my, my hope and, and my prayer for this room is that that wouldn't be true of us. For, for those of us that are following Christ, I pray that our lives would look different, 
and that we would walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's take the last uh, few minutes to talk through maintenance. Okay, so my life when following Christ, my life should be in a manner that is walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? So we're going to go through three things, how to walk worthy. The first thing we see in this passage is, is Paul saying that his prayer and his hope is that let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the way you do that is that he, that he says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so the first, the first way is to stand firm, to stand firm. Paul's like, man, that same energy, that same excitement you had for the gospel when you first received it from me, man, I pray that that would still be true in your life, that you would stand firm through what the world throws at you, the, the temptations to sin, whatever it is, stand firm. And it doesn't just say stand firm, it says stand firm with each other, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. I mean, this is what's so crucial and important about this group. Like how you guys come together weekly to meet together and encourage each other, like this is, this is a must. Like God created us to be in relationship and in community like this with each other so that we can help each other stand firm. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Man, this is so important. When I think of this verse, I think of faces of guys that over the last nine years since I've been following Christ, faces of guys that have helped me, that have held me accountable in areas that I struggle, that, that have said the hard things to me whenever I maybe wasn't even trying to hear them. Guys that'll be honest with me, encourage me, hear me out whenever I'm like at a low point. Like you need people around you like that. And I'd imagine most of them are in this room. Stand firm. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I think the reason it's my favorite is because it's like, especially, I don't know if it's as a guy, I don't know what it is, but it's like, be immovable. I'm like, yeah, be immovable. I like that. Be immovable. I think this verse is communicating the same thing that Philippians 1.28 is communicating. First thing on how to walk worthy is to stand firm. Second thing is to be fearful, fearless, not fearful, fearless. Verse 28 says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. When I think back to, to high school football, and if you played high school football in here and you're honest with yourself, you probably do too occasionally. I think back to high school football, back to my sophomore year, and especially if you're from a smaller town, when you're a sophomore, you will do whatever it takes to get playing time on varsity, whatever it takes. And so the month leading up to the season, I'm currently, at the time I was the backup quarterback and the starting quarterback was way better than me. I wasn't gonna get playing time. So I was like, I'm gonna have to figure out a different way to get playing time if I'm gonna, try, if I'm gonna get playing time on varsity. And so the only way to prove yourself as a sophomore is when the, the, the starters are practicing defense, what do they need? They need a scout team. They need a bunch of guys that'll just take hits and be practice dummies so that they can practice for the game. And so I'm like, you know what? I'll be a scout team dummy. I'll play running back, wide receiver, doesn't matter, coach. Let me get reps 
and, and try to show you that, that I'm fearless. And so I think back to the week before the first game, there's a play where I get the ball and I meet a guy in the open space and a guy, he was an all-state linebacker the year before. And I don't think he was really ready for this, but I like lowered my shoulder and ran straight at him, didn't try to avoid him. And I'm not gonna say I, I ran him over, but I'm also not gonna say I didn't run him over. And so after the play, I get up and I'm like feeling 10 feet tall. And after practice, like the rest of practice was good. As I'm leaving practice, the head coach brings me into his office with all the other coaches. And he's like, Miller, you got stuff in your neck. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What is he talking about? I said, what coach? He said, you got, this time he actually said stuff. He said, you got stuff in your neck. And I'm like, coach, I'm no idea what we're talking about here. (laughs) No idea. And he's like, it means you're tough, Miller. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Walk out of practice, 10 feet tall. First game comes, I get a ton of playing time. I'm like, man, this worked. Next week at practice, I'm like, I'm gonna do it again. Put me in on scout team, coach. And I'm in on scout team. I think it was the same play, I'm not kidding. Same play, I get the ball, open field again, same dude. He's ready this time. (laughs) He hits me. And in, I'm not kidding, immediately I knew it happened. Immediately I hit the ground, I know that my collarbone is broken, and I miss the rest of the season. What's the moral of the story? I'm still trying to figure it out, but I know that for about a week and a half, I was fearless. Absolutely fearless. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here, but nonetheless, we have to be fearless In this way, we can actually be fearless because Jesus empowers us to be fearless because of the gospel that we have. Where are we at? Oh, uh, last week, I know you guys talked a little bit about verse 21 in Philippians. Uh, 121 says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's more so what Paul's talking about here when he says be fearless. Like when I read that verse, I heard a sermon one time where uh, the main point was something along the lines of like, if you're not afraid of dying, how could you scare that person? Like how would you intimidate someone that is genuinely unafraid of dying and being with God? Like we see this in the Bible, the disciples, 11 out of the 12 disciples, or 10 out of the remaining 11 disciples died a death from their faith. We see Peter and John, they're they're arrested because they were sharing their faith with people. They were arrested and Acts 4.20 says this. This is their response to the people that arrested them. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're like, I would imagine they're in front of this council of people and they're like, look, we get y'all are mad, but we're not changing what we're doing. Like we can't do anything but tell people about the Jesus that has radically changed our life. And it, You can do with us what you will, but we're not changing what we do. And I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for me. The times that it's kind of uh, harder for me to be fearless is when I'm in the minority, right? When I'm in the minority of, am I gonna be the only person that's willing to share my faith with someone? Am I willing to be the only guy out of 10 at a bachelor party that's not willing to get drunk? Am am I the only person that's, that's willing to refuse to talk poorly about someone in a group when everybody else is, right? Like whenever we're in the minority, that's the time that it's really hard to be fearless and be fearless of who we have in us. 
And so it's easy in settings like this, right? Like when we're together, it's easy. But we don't just follow God in here. We follow God out there. God's word tells us to be fearless because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Number three is suffering will come. The, the, the passage promises suffering. It says, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24 says this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Bible's like, look, Christ suffered and you are to do what Christ did, right? And so if Christ suffered, suffering is gonna be in store for us. I think there's a tendency as we're kind of processing, man, do I wanna follow Jesus? Do I not? That, that if I follow Jesus, all my problems will go away. I think that's a tendency we, we maybe have right before or maybe even right when we come to faith. And, and there is an aspect of that that is absolutely true. That there, is a, there is a reality that when we follow Jesus, you are given peace and, and, and there's like your, your future, your hope, your eternity is secure in him because of what he's done. But the flip side of that is also true. You are now choosing to do something with your life that is the opposite of what the world is doing. Like, of course, that's going to rub for the rest of your life. If you were trying to follow Jesus, that is going to rub with what the world tells you you should do. The world says to follow yourself. Do what makes you happy, when you want, how you want. Money, success, these are the things that lead to happiness. But those of us that are following Christ know that that's not what leads to happiness and that it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. I saw a, uh, a study last week that blew my mind. Like I had to keep reading it because I'm like, this is crazy to me. But they did a study in the, in the last few weeks. They asked 4,000 people, they asked 4,000 people, what is it that you look to, to, to dictate or to de decide what is right? What is the correct or true thing? And, and the people were given three options. The people were given the option of what you think is best, like what your heart tells you. A second option was what the majority says. Like if, if more people than not think something is true, then it is true. And then the third option was that, that what God says or what the Bible says is true. People were given these three options and the results were 42% say what is right is what their heart, what their heart says, 42%. 29% says what the majority says. And 29% also said what God or the Bible says. What this is saying is that 71% of people right now, according to this study, say that something other than God gets to dictate what is true. And I think this is a really accurate representation of the world we live in today. The, our culture idolizes self. And when you make a decision to follow Christ, you make a decision to die to yourself and put others before yourself. That, that is going to lead to persecution and suffering in this life. 2 Timothy 3.12 also says this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I don't know what that's gonna look like for you. I think it'll look a little different for all of us. But if we're walking our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, it will lead to persecution, to suffering, but it's all about perspective because we know we've already gotten a taste of what's in store for us. And at that point, it's worth it. I mean, how, how cool is it that, 
that we get to share, even just a little bit, like we won't ever get to touch what Jesus did on the cross for us, but like how cool is it that we get to share just a little bit in what Jesus did for us by suffering and facing some persecution. It's all about perspective. To live our lives in a way that is worthy of Christ is something we'll never perfect. But I don't think that's actually the point. Like we are given the ability to follow Christ now because of the Holy Spirit being inside of us. We are able to walk worthy because of that. And it's not the point to be able to walk worthy on our own because of Galatians 2.22, where it says, I do, not, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, through doing good things, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could attain or fix our relationship with God on our own, there would have been no reason for him to send his son. It would actually have been the most unloving thing he could have done. If we were able to get to God on our own, him sending Jesus to die is the most unloving thing God could have done. But the reason he did it is because he enables us to be made right with him. And now we can walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been trying to like make yourself worthy to God on your own. And maybe tonight you're starting to think, man, it really is like, I'm trying to do good things. I'm trying to, to come to young adults, to, to read my Bible, to pray, to, to, do, to do more good than bad, to, to sin less, which are, these are great things. We should be doing these things. But these are not in and of themselves going to get us to God. The only thing that makes us right and worthy before God is what Jesus did on the cross for us. Jesus already did it for you. Then and only then will the way you live your life be able to truly look different and be worthy of Christ.